Hello, welcome to PQ, the one and only Pokemon Q podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Martin, brought to you with co-host, Carnival Lavelle. So after a brief break, uh, we are back with episode 21. I'm doing well, of course, with Connor. How are you doing? Doing well. I'm ready for the holidays. How about you? Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm I'm ready. Uh, it, it's always a whirlwind. Although this year it's been a lot quieter because um, uh, our family's coming out for Christmas instead. So it's just me and the, and the, and the folks this, this time around. So it's going to be pretty quiet. But I'm excited nonetheless. Get a day off work. Can't ask for more than that. How about you? You got any big plans for Thanksgiving? Um, I have. Um, so instead of having a large Thanksgiving like many people are doing, I have a few very small ones. Um, so I have a five-person Thanksgiving um, and then I have like a 10 person one, which is the largest one by far. And then I have another six ish person one, uh, that, that has like all of the same people as the 10 person one, just with a few less. <laughs> so, um, Oh, I'm, I was like spread out. I was yeah. Saying. So, so I only actually see, um, I only actually see like 15 unique people, I would say. Um, and a lot of them are people that I see on a weekly basis anyway. So uh, should be should be a-okay as far as safety goes. Uh, everybody's vaccinated and all that good stuff. So nice. But uh, well. excited to do some cooking, excited to do some eating or a lot of eating, some cooking, a lot of eating. That's pretty much my plan. Yeah. Eating's the best part. <laughs> Can't convince me otherwise. <laughs> um, well, hope you have fun. Hope everybody listening to this has a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, enjoy some turkey. Enjoy some time with family. Um, we're excited to bring you guys another episode. Today, we are going to be talking all about um, ways to go from good to great. So this is uh, a topic Connor really wanted to talk about. So we'll get to that shortly. A lot's happened in the past few months since we posted. Uh, we will be getting back to our posting schedule. Um, things will be getting right back on track. I mean, things happen in life. It's been kind of crazy, but things are kind of like uh, settling down. So you can expect episodes to come back regularly as well. Spotify should be uploaded by the time you're listening to this. Um, Cube League. Uh, so we just got, we just, we wrapped up my cube on Cube League and Vic ended up winning that uncontestedly with the Gyarados deck. Uh, deck was really nasty. He had a really solid build. Um, really good also field for Gyarados because there was a lot of blazing index that were really good um and Gyarados just kind of took it down so shout out to Vic we are in our uh November cube league now with the mysterious players cube I am not playing in this league unfortunately um but Connor you are playing in this league how have you enjoyed the cube so far how are things going I go back and forth on this cube it's very nostalgic like it's well built it's well balanced there's nothing nothing wrong with it or anything um it's just, uh, you know, the consistency is on the lower side and, and there can be some games that feel kind of sacky in one way or the other. So um, trying to distance myself from the, the variance and like the, the feels bad moments. But alas, I, uh, I did lose the second round. So I'm one and one on some, uh, some uh, bad matchup for sure. It's probably my worst matchup in the field. Um, and I definitely didn't play it perfectly, but I, I had a lot of feels bad moments as well. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to turn it around from there. I do think my deck this league is stellar, uh, potentially the best deck I've built in the last year or so. So really happy with it. Uh, just uh, just hoping that it doesn't uh, doesn't betray me, which is always the goal. 
Yeah, it, it always feels bad when you feel really good about a deck and then, you know, things happen. But we are, uh, I guess I didn't say what cube we're playing. We are playing MP Singleton Shop Cube. Um, so Singleton meaning it's just a single copy of every card, meaning that if there's a computer search, only one computer search. Although in this cube, there is the, the, the old computer search and the new ones. Maybe that's a bad example. But um, that's kind of where, like, the consistency sometimes come through is, like, you only have one copy of every single card. But there is a shop. I don't think we have, have we ran a shop cube for Cube League before? I don't believe this. Is, I think this is the first one. We've seen kind of uh, an outpouring of shop cubes in the last several months, and this was the one that we liked the most through testing. It was the power level that we wanted to run for the next league. Uh, it was in a good spot on balance, even when it was just released. So um, hard to uh, hard to argue with all those things. And I do believe it's the first one we played for the league. Uh, so that that was fun. Um, it allows you some reliability, especially in a singleton context, because you can pad out your consistency or, you know, pick up that basic you're missing, things like that. Um, and I, I actually really value the ability to patch up your basics because that can allow you to invest in other lines that you might not otherwise be able to get into. So uh, just, just lots of neat stuff that come from the shop aspect. I do think that this is probably the best balanced shop I've ever seen. Um, it's pretty small, which is my only criticism of it. I would like to see more choices that you could make, uh, more cards you could take from it. But all of the cards that are in there feel very purposeful, and they also feel like they are well-costed, which is, I find, a rarity. So um, been enjoying that aspect of it a lot. Yeah, if you guys want to check out the cube list, uh, links will be in the description. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting concept. I like the shop part of it where like you can you have coins you can spend to buy cards from the shop. Helps the draft also feel a little bit less like variance heavy because you didn't find maybe the consistency cards you needed or you get in those situations where, oh my gosh, I need to take my line topper, but also this consistency card's really good in here. It, it helps knowing that you have those options in the shop too. So really like that idea. I'm interested to see what comes out on top. Uh, we'll be fully we'll be following that too during the podcast, but um, let's get into a crack a pack as it has been quite a bit of time. So Connor, I believe you has a pack for us right now. I do indeed. So this is a pack from this month's Cube League Mysterious Players MP Singleton Shop Cube. Um, I I chafe at the name every time, but uh, it is here to stay. <laughs> I fear so. Um, in this pack, we have Empoleon from Diamond and Pearl with Ice Blade and Aqua Jet, um, Riolu with Detect and Jab, Palkia Level X, uh, not the G, just the base one, with Restructure, which is Double Gust, uh, and an attack that is rarely relevant, 3 for 60 and move an energy to your bench, Pokemon Flute, which is Target Whistle, uh, Nightly Garbage Run, which is Super Rod. Porygon 2 with Mapping, uh, which allows you to search your deck for a stadium when you evolve into Porygon 2. Pokemon Trader, which is Communication. Superior Energy Retrieval. Weakness Guard Energy. And Town Map. I didn't realize when I picked out this pack how many of the cards in this pack have references either prior to their release or closer or, or closer to the current time yeah that's actually true i actually didn't realize that palkia level x was a uh, double glass i always thought it was escape rope but i've never actually played against a palkia level x so i wouldn't know yeah it is it is a very very powerful uh poke power but it takes a very specific deck for it to work because palkia itself has three retreat so 
Um, ah. It, uh, I mean, Pokemon definitely knew how powerful the power was, and it, it did end up being successful anyway um, with cards like Flygon that allowed it to have free retreat. But, uh, yeah, incredibly powerful ability, even so. All right. Well, this is quite the pack here. Um, we were kind of look, uh, looking at this now. Um, I mean, you have several really good options here. I, the Palky Level X definitely has strength. Um, I don't know. And I, I definitely agree. I think in the right deck, I, it's very good. Um, uh, I'm a little bit shy to take it on the pack one because it is a singleton and there's only one other copy of Palkia in this cube that it can level up from. I don't think it can level up from the SP, right? Okay. And so there's no Palkia in the shop. So you are kind of limited to the other Palkia. Granted, there's not a lot of reason to take the other Palkia without the level X. So just not something I'm very excited about pack one. Um, Nightly Guybridge run, I always love looking at recovery, especially in a single thing queue, because your best attackers are limited to a single copy, um, most generally. So you're working with a wide array of Pokemon. It generally helps be able to get those back, especially the ones you need. So Nightly Guybridge runs a really good uh, recovery option. It's like super odd. Uh, obviously, Pokemon Trader, just really good uh, consistency card. Uh, communication itself, obviously, played in many decks back uh, not too long ago. So uh, I can look at Trader being a really high pick here. I think superior energy retrieval get, doesn't get the uh, the credit it deserves as being as a insane recovery option. Especially, I know there are like well, there's welder in this cube. There are decks like Raichu that benefit from like having uh, multiple energies in their hand. So it's a voltage shoot with the level X. So that card can be very powerful in in, in not and actually quite a bit quite a bit of decks. So I, I do really like superior energy retrieval uh, in this cube. Uh, Weak Discard Energy is an early card that I actually super love uh, just because I think weakness mitigation in general, especially in a lower power cube like this, is very important. Um, I don't think there are a a wide array of weakness mitigation options. I know there are quite a few. Um, so being able to have options like that as knowing your opponents probably won't have the same options is a, a huge advantage. I think every deck benefits from having uh, weakness uh, not being a factor. So... Um, the Empoleon, I'm not really sure how to evaluate. I mean, it's a good Empoleon, but I don't know. I, I'm always weird about taking, like, Stage 2s on, like, the first pick because, like, it just feels wrong. But unless it's a really good Stage 2, of course. Um, So I, I'm really torn between, like, quite a few of these cards. Because um, the Pokemon Trader, I think, is, like, the safest option. I think the, the you can't really go wrong with item consistency. Um, so that's definitely a high pick. I, I do really love Superior and Nightly Garbage Runner. I like Superior more if I know what deck I'm into. Like, if I know... I'm going to be into Raichu or into a deck with Walder that like that, that card's going to definitely get value out of it. Uh, Cause it is, you'd have to discard two cards off the top. So, but it, again, the card has a lot of, as an item card, it, it just does so much. That's just getting you energy for turn. Um, and the deck said it's good and it's great. And so that's a huge buff. Um, I guess I failed to mention town map. Town map's kind of interesting in this kind of setting too, because it is a singleton cube. So, uh, I think your prizes matter a lot more, I would guess. Um, obviously Connor, feel free to correct me whenever I'm done here, but I think town map would be kind of interesting in decks or you're really focused around certain, uh, build around cards that you need access to and you don't have stuff like Azelf. Actually, a copy of Gliding is given at the top though, now thinking about it. So town map kind of loses a little bit of value in that sense. So, um, that's, that's interesting with weakness guard energy. I'm talking between weakness guard energy and trader, honestly, because I think weakness guard has a lot of value in the sense that it's it's going to get you more matchup spreads, but Trader gives you more consistency. I, I guess the question then for me is like, is is it worth having more? Uh, is 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 there enough consistency for me to reasonably expect, you know, that 
the pass up something like that. I do think something that like weakness guard provides is just safety and a lot of your bad matchups. And there's a lot of colorless requirements in a lot of these attackers. So I feel like on a lot of lines that I'd be in, I, I'd feel safer drafting this card in than like if it was like a different cube that maybe this wouldn't work with. But for the power level that we're in and that I think weakness is that important, I'm, I'm actually going to take the weakness guard energy, um, which might surprise some people, but I, I think it's actually very important for your matchup spread. And Connor, I'd be really interested to see what you are going to take in this queue. I know you've ran this quite a few times, so interested to hear your thoughts. Uh, I think that your pick of weakness guarded energy is interesting. I don't think it's wrong necessarily, but I, I will talk about that. Um, I will say, um, for starters, a couple of things. Uh, as you said, Town Map normally would be a decently valuable card in Singleton. I still don't love it because it doesn't really do anything, but um, getting the Gladian here for free makes it a lot less powerful. Uh, as far as my pick here, that that's a, a tough question. Um, so I'm not as opposed to taking a Stage 2, Pack 1, Pick 1 as you are. Um, I do like taking stage two's pack one pick one if the pack doesn't have uh, a significant reason to take something else or if I think that's the best stage two in the cube or the best stage two in the line um, then oftentimes I will be taking stage twos early I'll be speculating however this pack does have lots of reasons not to go into that stage two there are a lot of cards that it competes for so probably not a card that I'm going to take in the first pack but uh, in, in other cases, I would absolutely take a line topper in the first pack, um, especially in a cube with uh, as few cards as this one has. As it is a 576, but you still have to build 60 card decks. So uh, for the actual league, we had uh, four packs of 18, and that was it. Uh, so the faster you can get onto a line, the, the safer you're going to be. Uh, that said, there are quite a few cards that this is competing for, so uh, Palkia Level X is, is one of the biggest standouts to me. Um, getting it this early means you're going to have more options to enable it. It's going to be a lot easier for you to prioritize those Float Stones, those Retreat Aid Dodrios, cards like that appropriately. Whereas um, if you get the Palkia late, then a lot of the time you're not going to be able to enable it. Uh, Nightly Garbage Run, always an excellent card, just having premium recovery. Uh, Pokemon Trader is almost optimal search. I think the only thing that would be better is Luxury Ball or so. Pokemon counts in this cube generally run pretty high, so Pokemon Trader is pretty much always live. Um, I do like Superior Energy Retrieval. I appreciate your call out of it. I don't think it really competes with a lot of the top cards in this pack, but I do like the card a lot in, the cube, in, in cube in general. I think it's underrated by a lot of people. Um, just being able to get four energy back with a single card is very powerful. Um, Weakness guard energy I like a lot, and in this cube there are very few options to eliminate your weakness. However, on the flip side of that, in this cube diversifying your line or diversifying your deck into multiple lines is quite common. It's not too difficult to do. The tempo loss from it isn't severe enough that it puts you on the back foot that often. So um, on one hand, weakness guard energy, one of very few weakness eliminating effects. If I did want to play a single color deck, then that would be a really excellent, really important card, I would say. Um, but if I end up playing a multicolor deck, which I almost certainly will be, uh, both because of my personal preferences as a drafter and because this cube allows it so well, um, it's not going to be the end of the world. If I lose the weakness card energy, then I'll know that my weakness option, my weakness reduction options are fewer, and I can plan for that accordingly. Uh, and I don't think I would really consider the town map 
I just don't love the card. Um, <laughs> Fair. So my, my top two cards really are, are Pokemon Trader, Palkia Level X. Um, Palkia Level X, I generally think is an incredible card. In this cube, I originally thought it was an incredible card, and now I've actually come down on it a little bit. Um, I don't think it is quite as good as I initially thought because you don't have as much control over your board in the sense that, you know, if you have a Lapras, you are almost certainly going to need to play that Lapras in a game. If you there are some higher retreat basics that you're going to need to play, Palkia itself has three retreats, so if you don't find like a float stone or even even something like uh, an unknown cue or an escape board in tandem with a retreat a Dodrio, it can get tricky. I have seen the Palkia level X with the retreat a Dodrio, but it is not the insane combo you might expect. It's very setup heavy, it's very awkward to get into. And at the end of the day, you still have to get good value out of that retreat. A Dodrio doesn't retreat out of itself, so you're going to discard an energy in one way or another. Um, so it is a powerful card, but it is a lot more constrained than I originally thought when I was evaluating this cube. Whereas Trader uh, is normally an excellent card, and in this cube I think it's even more excellent because Pokemon counts do tend to be so high. Uh, ultimately, I think it would just be up to my mood that day. What am I? What do I feel like playing? Um, as, as ridiculous as that sounds, uh, it, it definitely has a big impact on how I draft. Um, if I'm absolutely trying to win, I think I would take the trader because I have seen far too many cases where Palkia is not particularly useful. Or, or it's too difficult to enable, even when picked up in the first pack. Um, that said, I think Palkia Level X could be an absolutely excellent pick out of this pack, and I would not look at anybody funny for doing it. I think this is the best time in the draft you could possibly get it, because you can draft a line that works better with it. You can draft the pieces at a higher priority, so this is a great, great time. However, I don't think the gust in this cube is as powerful as it often is, and I don't think that Palkia is quite as easy to work around as it might be in other cubes. Yeah, definitely well said. Yeah, I never looked too closely at Palkia Leflex in the past, just because, I mean, for one, I started playing 2017, so those cards way after my, way before my time. But um, looking at it now, I definitely could see a case for it. Um, interesting. Was it played often back in the day? You said with Flygon. Was that like the Flygon lock? Yeah, so... so um... To answer the first question, no, it was not played popularly. Um, it was very difficult sure. to make. Well, it had to be work. very specific deck, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, there were not a lot of good retreat reducing reducing options. That said, Flygon from Rising Rivals did give this card a lifeline in the sense that it allowed it to finally have free retreat and very easily have free retreat as well. Um, Flygon Rising Rivals had the power rainbow or the the body rainbow float which said that any Pokemon in play that had a basic, or that shared a type with a basic energy attached to Flygon had free retreat. So it made Palkia an excellent option, and it was a big part of the Flygon lock deck with Memory Berry and Sandtomb Trap Inch to trap a Pokemon active. So it definitely had its time in the sun. However, the format wasn't quite so conducive to it as it might have been in a different era with cards like Floatstone, um, you, you basically just had Switch and Warp Point, and nowadays, even then, that would probably be enough because decks very commonly play heavy counts of Switch, but that was not the case back then. It was, it was a two of at most, usually fewer. 
So uh, Palkia didn't really have a lot of opportunities in its time. That said, in Cube, there are a lot of ways throughout the history of Pokemon to make it work. And uh, and you, you've always, as soon as I see the Palkia, I'm always going to be looking for ways to turn that into an asset every single turn, or at least more reliably. Um, but when it was in Standard, uh, it, it didn't have as many opportunities. Well, there's your Pokemon history lesson for the day. And yeah, very, very nice analysis of this pack. Uh, if you're listening to this and you want to let us know what you would pick, let us know on our YouTube channel in the video in the comments. Let us know what you would pick from this pack. Be interested to see you. And I think that's going to wrap us up for this crack up pack here. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about how to go from good to great just here in a second. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to our main segment here. We're going to be talking about going from a good Q player to a great Q player. Uh, this is one that I, I've been talking with Connor a lot. He really, he really excited to talk about it. So, uh, Connor, I'm going to let you uh, lead this one since uh, I know you've been uh, preparing this topic on your own. So, uh, where do you want to start with this? Yeah, uh, well, so so first I want to start with um, the notion that, you know, this is about going from a, a good cube player to a great cube player, but potentially more accurately is this is talking about mistakes that good players still make and improvements that they might be able to make to their game that um, are not obvious or maybe they haven't made yet or um, even things that uh, don't stand out just from the process of playing. Because a lot of the time, a good cube player has come to be good um, from playing a lot of cube, from seeing what succeeds, seeing what doesn't succeed, you know, maybe talking to some people about it as well. Um, but the the process of kind of going beyond or, or improving on, or improving once you're already very proficient is um, not as intuitive. It's a lot of like thinking and really breaking things down at a at a micro level um things like that so i wanted to talk about them kind of bring a lot of the most common ones that i see into the light and uh just discuss uh discuss quite a few actually we have today yeah i'm excited to talk about it i think that's one of the hardest things in general if you do anything like even like even if you just play the game competitively too like going from there's a lot of mistakes you make when you're even like proficient at it that it, it can be really hard to tell it's very it can be very nuanced so that's something I'm also interested to talk about and interested to hear what your thoughts are. Um, because I feel like that's going to relate to a lot of people out there who are very proficient at cube and have a lot of good habits, but sometimes those, uh, there's, there's those bad habits in there too, that I, I have them as well that like, you don't realize on the surface level, but then when someone points them out, it sort of clicks. So hopefully some of those moments happen for some of our listeners out there, but yeah, why don't, why don't you get into it? What's the first thing you'd like to break down here? Yeah. So, so my first point that I want to touch on is, um, Experimentation with different deck ideas, with different archetypes, different strategies, even even down to the card level, you know, different cards, different Pokemon, different trainers. Um, one common factor that I see a lot of really, you know, the top, uh, the top most successful Q players, especially in the Discord, because um, really I, I, the, the top players that I see in the Discord are generally way better than the people that I see um, at at your average cube table. And I think that most people share that same experience. Um, so um, things that I see players like Vic and JL do um, are experiment with decks 
that might not be good, uh, but have a lot of potential or, or um, they're unexplored. People don't necessarily respect them. Their strategy is maybe not straightforward, things like that. Um, and, um, I definitely try to do this myself as well. Um, if I don't really, if I see a line and I think that it has potential, uh, even though, you know, maybe it takes some setup or it needs some certain stuff to enable. Um, I, I do try to make those things work. I think that's really exciting. I think it's a, a really big source of my fun in cube is making interesting stuff work. Um, and, and it's something that I see a lot of players shy away from. So, um, a really great example of that is um, JL playing Unknown in the uh, coin flip cube. Um, now, I, I know that there were quite a few people playing Unknown in that league, so JL was not the only one that tried this, but JL definitely looked at an archetype that, at least to me, was very difficult to understand, uh, and I think a lot of people shared that, and JL realized the pieces of that archetype that really pushed it to the top of the pack. Um, JL's unknown list was by far the best because JL recognized the pieces of that deck that would make it the most powerful it could be. It was not as fussed with some of the weaker cards or uh, things like that. The, uh, the multiple unknown B was absolutely massive. So, um, it, it takes experimentation and at least experimentation at the planning level and the thought level, um, you know, thinking through a deck and really thinking, you know, this piece is more important than this other piece. And these are what I need to make this specific line work. But uh, a lot of the time it is actually going through and trying out a line that maybe seems a little bit more finicky or maybe you need to work a little bit harder to get going, but has a lot of potential. You know, it's... Um, very often uh, over this last year, we see the winning deck in a cube league be very different from the other decks in the league. And uh, I, I think a lot of that comes down to a willingness to build something that is either less obvious or uh, less straightforward and, and attempt to succeed with that. But uh, Andrew, what has your experience been with that? For one example, it happened most recently, is the Vic going headfirst into Gyarados. As I felt like that was a line in my cube that a lot of people were writing off very quickly. Uh, and I don't think many people really tried to draft it, as, as at least as dedicated as Vic did. And he got a pretty uncontested Gyarados draft, and it turned out to obviously went really well for him. He won the, the cube league. But that, that was an example of someone trying a line that hadn't had a lot of positive responses or had the, the backing that... You know, I think uh, like everyone would have gone to it with the same intentions. But I think Vic identified its strengths and saw that there was an open field for it. So went for it and ended up working really well for him. And you see that trade a lot, uh, especially in Cube League, where I do think those kind of attributes really matter because uh, obviously if you have the most put together deck and especially in these high power cubes, like you have a huge advantage. If you have them, you know, all the pieces you need, and no one's fighting you for it. It's a huge part of just drafting in general. You want to have the most opportunities. So experimentation, I think, also comes from also just playing a lot of cube and being comfortable with the idea of trying new things. Um, I, I definitely think if this is something you're wanting, that you feel like you need to work on, you want to work on, uh, I would recommend trying a lot of the test drafts we do for these cubely cubes or even just like the random flash cubes in general. Uh, it's kind of hard to implement 
on the first go of like a cube league draft <laughs> it can be kind of dangerous but um if you're if you're someone out there who finds himself wanting to experiment more uh it's always a good idea to like practice for like do like a for fun cube and like try to push yourself to try other lines or art maybe even play styles you're not necessarily comfortable with or you would normally draft i know for me personally when i drafted jails uh mike or mike and jails delta meet and cube uh drafting control was something that i've never done before in cube i've never really I mean, I've played some control, but I'm definitely not what you would call a control player per se. Um, so that was a really fun experience, but that's something I hadn't really tried before. Um, so, but I, I saw the pieces in the cube to make it work and, and the draft could have lend itself to that. And it ended up working out really well. I mean, I got into the top four, which was really exciting or maybe it was top eight. I don't remember, <laughs> but that, that was an example. Of, I think if I'd gone with another line, I might not have had the same success because the control deck was just very different and it allowed me to play a lot of unique games that I don't think people were necessarily ready for. So it gave you sort of an advantage because people weren't as familiar with how your deck worked that um, that playing with that sort of experimentation benefited from that. So this is like sort of my examples uh, for ex how experimentation I think you could implement and also like how it benefit yeah, as far as like two players go. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a, another really great example and um, one that I totally blanked on <laughs> in that moment. <laughs> but it really, really exactly uh, talks or references what what I'm talking about here. Um, one other thing too is that I see really good cube players, good drafters, good builders build these uh, very cookie cutter. Um, you know, four, 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 one line or four, four, four line or whatever, you know, a thick line of their main guy, they've got some tools to support it. And that's it. That's the end. Um, those decks, if, if I see a new cube player build a deck like that, I'm really happy for them because that is a deck that functions. It executes its game plan and, and that's great, but that is not the kind of deck that is often going to allow you to really break through. And of course, you know, consistent decks are, are excellent. Um, you know, Vic's Gyarados deck was extremely streamlined down to just Gyarados support Pokemon energy. That's it. But there are also a lot of decks that break free of that that also do exceptionally well. Uh, and, and I do see a lot of players who are good drafters and they build good decks who are not willing to kind of break outside of that mold of, okay, I'm going to draft a thick line of a single Pokemon. That's going to be my line. I'm not going to play anything to deal with bad matchups. I'm just going to try and do one thing as well as I can. And that only gets you so far most of the time. Usually you need to account for those bad matchups in some way. If you really want to excel, you need to think beyond just the, the original scope of the deck. Um, or you need to think in a more specific way and really boil that deck down to exactly what allows it to be the most powerful it can be. Um, an example being Vic Gyarados deck, Jail's Unknown deck. Um, both of those were a very streamlined strategies, but they were boiled down extremely to the points that made those decks as powerful as they were. So um, that's, that it all kind of plays into experimentation. Um, but moving on to number two, uh, our second point is uh, tied to experimentation, which is why we've got it at number two, because they, they play kind of hand in hand, and it's breaking with or diversifying your main strategy or line. Um, and this can mean a lot of things. This can mean incorporating other 
uh, Pokemon into your deck that kind of diversify your strategy. This can be pulling in support Pokemon from other lines that might incorporate well into your main strategy. Um, this can mean running a different trainer line than you might usually, you know, deviating from the the search and support that make most decks tick and really thinking about what kind of utility value you might be able to get. Um, and this, this is, you know, experimentation is very macro level. That's something that you think about in advance or, or you, you know, you make a very large scale decision and it affects your entire draft. Diversifying your main strategy or line, it can affect your entire draft, but it doesn't have to. Sometimes it will affect a very small portion of your deck, but it will have very significant results. Um, so, Andrew, what, what are your thoughts there? Um, so I thought, like, um, when, you, when you say, like, diversifying your main strategy, um, maybe this is too tongue-in-cheek, but, like, the, the Mutant Cube in general, like, the um, Vix winning deck, the uh, the fighting deck, had a lot of that diversifying strategy um, with the Salamence in there, as well as, like, the uh, the Milotic. Like, I feel like Vic's deck in that respect was built to do a lot of different things. And I remember when we talked about this cube, that was one of the uh, qualities of a good deck in that in that style, was that it, it, it had multiple ways to win the game. And I think that's something very important. I think that's something where those kind of cubes in general can be kind of hard to draft, like, really well, because you're thinking about more than just, like, the main game plan. And I, I, I think if you look through a lot of those deck lists, that even just like the top eight you see a lot of that where like decks are diversifying their strategy and there's a lot of different they don't aren't just dependent on well i need to attack with this wing guy there's different there's different ways to deal with uh the multitude situation you can be in especially in a mutant cube um so i don't know i think i think decks like that and like big deck encompass a lot of that do you, do you agree disagree yeah, I, I think that's exactly um the point that i'm getting at here i think vic is a player who just does that exceptionally well um in general like across his decks but um a thing or another thing is that you know to to an outside observer vix deck in that that same deck that you were referring to the one in delta mutant um it may have just looked like an aggressive fighting deck but there was a lot more to it than that the locking angles of that deck were extremely potent and that was often what vic was able to leverage into a win it wasn't just go fast hit hard with strong energy it was go fast hit hard with strong energy and then you can't play the most important cards for this situation uh and and that is a different direction from the you know go fast hit hard like locking people is very different from going as quickly as you can dealing as much damage as you can for as few energy so um, those streams in that case uh, merged really well and uh, and you find that all over in cube um it's very rare that a deck can't be tinkered with can't be modified slightly to play to different angles or um, take advantage of different cards or different strategies uh, incorporated into its main thing you know some some disruption can go excellently in almost every deck so um, even as something as simple as that can can really make a big impact on your win rate um, and it's something that I I see a lot of good players um, not value enough. I feel like that's something I'm seeing. I see Best Pal Al do a lot, especially because the time I played him in a uh, team challenge, uh, he actually he was playing a copy of Flare Grunt and a copy of Detour Jirachi. We actually doing I think we actually were doing Mike and Jail's cube as well, or no? I, remember, I think we were doing um, Evie's cube. Um, and it, it was funny. The uh, you would think just like a Flare Grunt in 
you don't people don't think much about like this kind of cards like the the discard effect on flare grant it's really good in control right but he, he wasn't playing a control deck he's playing just like you know regular attacking deck but the flare grant actually put the game in a very unique spot because had he not played the flare grant when he did uh i was gonna have a very streamlined like game like my tempo was great but he put the flare grant there and it's like well now i have a damaged attacker that i have to attach to and it's gonna put me behind many attachments and had he not played the flare grant i mean the game pacing would have been completely different and i have to applaud him for that i think the cards like that included in your deck are, are something that can make it gives you more options in the game as opposed to just attacking like it gives you a way to slow down your opponent and put them into a unique spot it's like I don't know. I just think like if a chest, it's like if you had all the same pieces in chess, the game would be boring. Like if you all, it just had all like, you know, rooks and stuff, it wouldn't make any sense. But like with chess, it gives you a lot of different pieces to work with to manipulate your board. I think in cube, you can kind of apply the same concepts where you have options for tempo, but you also have options for disruption. And it's how you use those pieces in your deck, I think can make your deck a lot more, well, one, make it a lot more unpredictable and like how your opponent's going to respond. But two, it gives you a lot more unique opportunities to put your opponent in situations they don't want to be in and gives you the chance to get tempo, stuff like that. Absolutely. And and that last point to uh, the unexpected angle, um, it is exceptionally true in closed deck list environments. Uh, if you can drop an unexpected tech on your opponent that uh, changes the tempo or the, the landscape of the game, a lot of the time that's going to be a game you win. So um, just, a, just another angle to, to consider there. Moving on to our third point, uh, it is taking taking a, a bit of a break away from these first two points that were tied together. It's being too open or not open enough, um, and that is uh, in in more detail. It's uh, being afraid or being too afraid to invest or speculate on powerful build arounds that might not end up in your deck, or seeing that powerful build around and committing too hard to it. Um, so I'm sure we've seen this many, many times and we see it in lesser experienced cube players where they see a stage two and they just latch onto that and they ride that the whole draft come whatever. But even good players do this. Um, and and what I see a lot in good players and good drafters, like experienced ones, because, you know, a new player could be a good player and drafter as well. Um, a lot of what I see is people being too open, being too afraid to commit to a card early on that might create a very powerful deck or very powerful opportunity for them. Um, they are... Essentially, you know, maybe they take a powerful consistency card or or maybe they take a medium consistency card. I do see some players really avoid committing to anything for a long time. And that can oftentimes result, or that, that will almost always result in a good deck. It will. Um, it will it will often result in an excellent deck. Or not an excellent deck, but, but a good deck. A deck that does what it's supposed to do. A deck that doesn't have a lot of competitions. You will find what's open. That kind of thing. But it will rarely result in the best deck. Because by the time you commit to your line, you've already missed some critical synergy pieces that could allow your deck to really, you know, hit that next level and break through the ocean of good decks that we see in, in pretty much every league. Um, those 
key synergy pieces, those key enablers, those key build arounds that you may have missed, you know, that line is open now, but there are parts of that line and parts of that strategy that you'll never see because you weren't willing enough to speculate into those things. Um, so that that's the being too open side. The, or the, the not open enough side, this is something that I also see very successful cube players do, is they see a very powerful build around and they commit too hard to it. They stop looking for signals that that line might not be open. They um, just look to enable that one specific card, even to the detriment of other very open strategies that might be coming their way, that might be as powerful or even slightly less powerful, but much easier to build out the best possible version of. Um, so it, it goes both ways, and it's a very difficult balancing act to maintain. And very few players get it right every time. Um, so this is this is definitely one of the most difficult things I would say as far as continuous improvement. Um, I I don't think anybody does this perfectly, um, and uh, it's something that you can be improving at constantly, and something that I think that good high level cube players um, can improve on uh, some of the most uh, because you know they've refined out a lot of those basic skills they have. Uh, great ability to strategize they have ability to build great decks they know how to flush out a strategy but they are not always or even often not seeing the best strategy for them in that given draft because they're either too afraid to commit to powerful cards or they are um they are too fast to seize on a powerful card and and they don't continue to look at the <laughs> look at the world around them in a sense but Andrew, Andrew, what are your thoughts on being too open or not open enough? Yeah, when when to pull the trigger. Yeah, no, it's hard. It's it's something that takes a lot of practice. Um, I, I, I think I've been on both ends of this, <laughs> funny enough. Like I, I've definitely had drafts where I've been too open and then by the time I committed, it was already too late, or I missed out on the opportunity of drafting just like better cards with the line. And then uh, obviously the nod being open enough, I think happens to everybody at some point. Um, especially when you're like still learning like the ins and outs of cube and, and something I think we all struggle with it from time to time. It's you see, you see the line, you, especially if it's the line you want to play and you hold on to it and then you realize midway through the draft, maybe the line isn't as open as you thought. Um, I think in general, uh, it, it really just like, you have to evaluate cards on an, on like a, on a spectrum of like, how great is this card and can I build around it? Uh, I think cube knowledge goes like knowing what is in the cube definitely plays a huge role in that too. Uh, I think that's one of the best ways you can prepare for this is knowing what are my build arounds for X card? Um, am I committed to one line with X card? You know, stuff like that. So like take something like Walder, for example, like Walder's a great card, obviously like something you'd really like to see and you'd be like, okay, this is gonna be great in a fire deck, but does it also work in other types of decks? So it'd also be a good thing to consider. Um, but I think it kind of plays into knowing, um, knowing the cube just really well because like it's hard to make judgment calls on like you want to commit to a line if you haven't seen other pieces for it but if you don't know what pieces are in the in the cube it's not always as simple as okay i see empoleon i haven't seen other empoleons that lines uh, uh clearly not open that might not always be the case uh i think camera up in um mp's cube is an example where there is one camera up that i think goes into a, like other different decks that like you could maybe make a case for like if you don't see that camera it doesn't mean the line's not open um, so like, I think some players are like too scared to touch lines like that. Cause they're like, Oh, I didn't see this camera come back. But like, yeah, if you understand that the, how that's how the cube works and like, like I know there's like a guard of deck that plays like the, I think actually your deck plays the camera up in it. I think, 
Connor, uh, where uh, can you bring energy to yourself? The Team Magma's one. Um, that might Play, just be uh, a camera up and a Gardevoir, actually. So you, yeah, called <laughs> out both of them. <laughs> Right on, yeah. So like that would be a, a card that if you were drafting camera up, you might think, well, I'm not going to get that camera up, or I, I didn't see that camera come back, so like I'm not going to commit to a line like that. And you pass up all the fire pieces, but like if you understand how the cube works, you'd be like, okay, well, I, I don't need that camera up to build a camera up deck. I am saying camera up a lot in this episode. I apologize. But, <laughs> um, I, you get what I'm trying to say. I, I think in, in some aspects where people like don't understand the signals or don't understand the cards that are uh, being taken. They, they might be more gun shy on certain lines, but like you really just shoot yourself in the foot and you miss out on those opportunities to draft like a, like a coherent fire deck because, because you see the camera not cut back, you don't take the welder, but you don't take the welder. Then, then the blacksmith comes around and you're like, okay, fire might be open, but you've already missed out on the welder. That's kind of the thing. It's like, you got to understand when to commit and that sometimes just stockpiling good cards and like early in the pack works out. Like it's okay to take a welder even if you're not in fire because there's a chance that well one now that you have the welder someone else isn't in fire uh, and then two if somehow you know maybe all the infernapes come in the last pack well now you have the if you already have good consistency for fire it makes it easier to get into those lines. Yeah, I mean if you go pack one pick one welder, um, even against you know some solid consistency stuff because you recognize that welder is a really excellent card and it can enable a lot of decks. And then, uh, you know, come pack three, suddenly you see a camera upped and it's like, you know, pick seven. Well, it starts to look uh, pretty decent that you might be able to get into that camera up, take advantage of that welder. And despite not being on your line until pretty late, have a really excellent deck out of it. So things like that, they happen all the time. I, I would consider myself a pretty aggressive drafter in the sense that I will go after multiple strategies and multiple build arounds in the early part of the draft. Um, because I want to have the best version of a deck that I possibly can. And uh, I, that happens constantly in my drafts is, um, you know, I'll I'll start off in a certain direction, but I'll have some really strong pieces for other decks. And then, you know, maybe I'm not seeing quite the cards that I want to see. Maybe it doesn't seem like the line that I started on is quite open. And I'll pivot on to one of those lines that I have some of the build arounds for. So um, and, and then it turns out very well. So uh, that happens a lot, and it's something that I think that uh, a lot of players could um, could get more experience with. Yeah, I mean, I when I draft, I like to have if I, if I have an idea what line I'm going to get into, I like to have like other options. So like if this if option A doesn't work out, does my line synergize with other lines that I could make work? Or judging by what I'm seeing at the table, do these pieces that I have work in other decks? And then as the draft goes on, you can make that confident decision. But I think the worst is when you just commit to a line early and then you have no plan later. So we're like, it's like building the car without the engine. Like I see a lot of players, they will get the, some of the line and then they'll feel really confident about I'm on this deck. My deck's coming together. Great. But like, let's just say they don't have like the critical piece that makes the deck work. They just have the line toppers. Well, then you don't really have the deck. You have the shell of a deck that could work. But then you get to the end of the draft, you're like, oh, I didn't see quote unquote X card. And then, and then they're sad. And really the thing you have to look at is like, does your deck have like function during the draft? And if it doesn't, what can you do to make it functional? So like, if you have good pieces, what, what decks do they work in? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. And, and I think it's not necessarily just a matter of functioning, um, but it's also a matter of really getting the most out of it. That's definitely like what you were calling to. Um, but, uh, just to put in, you know, very specific terms, um, getting 
the most out of the line that you play. You know, you don't want to play a half-baked deck. You don't want to play a deck that has a line and it doesn't do anything. You know, you want to play a deck that has really great synergies. It has a great line or lines. uh, Those lines are enabled to be as powerful as they can be or at least as powerful as they can be given the cards that you saw. Um, And uh, you want to be in that situation every time. You don't want to be in the situation of you have a nice thick line and you have no good... (laughs) synergy pieces no good cards that push it farther yeah it's always great when you get like the build arounds first so something like a like a jamie ampharos that you can make work as opposed to having the deck that's perfect for jamie ampharos and then you don't get jamie ampharos like that's always the worst situation in my opinion absolutely and and it happens all the time like people yeah. people commit too hard to situations people commit too hard they don't diversify enough they don't uh, find powerful synergies enough um yeah it happens all the time so but moving on to point number four um and this ties into being too open or not open enough but uh, not quite as directly it is misreading or dropping signals so good drafters are able to read signals no problem like that is a skill that they have it's a skill that they're often very good at no issues there But something that I see often is good players misreading signals or missing some signals that are a little bit on the quieter side. Uh, It's very easy, uh, especially for a good player, to see a stage two not come back and then know that that line is not open. But when you really start to get to the, the nitpicky stuff, you know, the stage ones, the tools that work well with that deck the energy that work well with that deck things like that um they can give you a lot of knowledge they can give you a lot of information but if you miss that signal if you miss that card if you miss that it was there and didn't come back then suddenly you are not playing with the full hand of information that you could be and you are going to be more likely to make a mistake in the draft based on that incomplete or incorrect information um you know Maybe you see a card come back and you haven't seen pretty much any of those cards. You know, the, the stage ones haven't been wheeling. The basics haven't been wheeling. Um, maybe you saw a stage two and it went pretty early, but you see a stage two in the third pack, pick 10. And you think, oh man, yeah, maybe this line is open because it's so late. At that point, a lot of the time, person who's playing that line is going to be wheeling that stage two because they they have so many of that card they have so many of the pieces for that i see it very often that people will pick up a late stage two against a consistency card that they could use that um they think you know might be open and people are already invested in that um i see people take stage twos too early in the mid to late portions of the draft you know thinking that they might be able to get onto that when that's already been taken so um misreading and dropping signals is is kind of the next way that you can improve your signal observation game and uh you know picking changing your perception perspective on the cards that you look at you know don't just look at the line toppers don't just look at those build arounds which those are the most important cards for reading signals and of course you're going to be looking at those cards but go a level deeper on that you know look at the 
so so like the the metal goggles the frying pans uh for metal decks the special metal energy um the stage ones for your stage two lines uh things like that those those more subtle signals that are a lot easier to miss um you know start to start to look for those especially toward the tail end of a pack you can find a lot of information in the tail end of a pack um, even if it's not stage twos or or line toppers so andrew uh what is your experience with this yeah like the i i like seeing like the like the evolving basics at the end of the pack are really interesting or like what generally comes to you really late like if you get like last pick a certain basic sometimes that's a good signal that like people aren't really interested in those lines um they weren't trying not to at least take it after having two or three passes um another thing too on like as far as like looking too deep into signals or looking at signals is that you also have to understand who you're playing with and how what their understanding of the cube is because there's certain cards like let's just say like the shuckle that lets you discard three energies um has really good uh synergies obviously with the lull and eggs but if people that you're drafting with don't know that or don't know what's in the cube and you see the shuckle go around but you aren't seeing any execute pieces coming through that's another thing you got to look at is do people do you think people understand that this card is good or do you think that people understand how this line works that they will take this card early or is it just one of those things that like even though you see like maybe the shuckle come around but you haven't seen any executor pieces do you have any you know can, can you make a case for that line being open generally if you haven't seen like depending where you are in the in the draft like that might just be you know bait in that sense so you have to think about that too who you're drafting with what's their understanding of the cube and could there be a, a chance that you're getting like a false signal on some cards too? I think that trips people up too, where they see a certain card that they that they think is good in the line, but whoever's drafting the line isn't drafting that card for whatever reason. It, it honestly can mess some people up if you're not thinking about like, yeah, you know, what what are the possibilities of maybe someone else drafting this line and not taking these cards if you haven't seen other cards from that line? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's actually a fantastic point because part of being the best cube player at the table uh, a lot of the time is acknowledging or, or recognizing that um, you know how to read the draft better you know how to develop strategies better you know a lot of the time people that you're playing with are less experienced especially for the listeners of this podcast who are probably very heavily into cube most of the time um, you know a, a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast are the best or you know the top couple of drafters at their table and they have learned to draft in a way that relates to that um you know the the shuckle that andrew talked about if you are used to playing with very very good skilled or very high skilled uh cube players then that shuckle can be a very powerful signal but at a table that is not quite as good or not quite as familiar with cube that is a much less significant signal than actually seeing the line topper um, so that's really interesting. I actually see the disparity the most in Champions Cube because so many people are used to being the best drafter at their table and then they go to Champions Cube and they are on par with or maybe even, you know, they're like the fifth or sixth best drafter in the pod and suddenly things that they would consider a signal normally are not as valuable. Things that they wouldn't consider a valuable signal normally are incredibly informative um, and so uh, knowing your audience, uh, we don't have this on the list. Knowing your audience can definitely be valuable, but uh, knowing your audience is definitely important for uh, understanding how much to value different kinds of signals as well. And it all plays into that uh, misreading and, and dropping different kinds of signals. 
like so that's the thing with draft right it's like inherently we're all on the same playing field like stripping away you know obviously the analytical side like we're all seeing cards at, at you know at the same time but like the way you differentiate yourself from everyone on the table is like how you analyze each pack and that's how you can sort of get a step up in the game is like you know playing like you know three turns ahead in that sense it's like I understand like okay maybe you know a few of these players are new or, like they're gonna let some of these things go through and you know you have to make you have to make judgment calls like that and I think that's the hardest thing as when you're trying to go from you know breaking the like you know from going from good to great it's like you have to like take each session as it is and not try to play by the playbook every time like you have to make those judgment calls based on the information you have so when you look at a cube table and who you're drafting it's super important to think about like what's their experience what 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 are my expectations like what I expect someone to know like to take these cards and it, it sounds silly um honestly until you until you apply it and it honestly can make a big difference in how your draft goes because you're playing with you know if, if, if you're playing with an advantage in that sense if you can understand like okay this is how they're probably going to approach it I need to you know I can make judgment calls based on that that sort of thing absolutely absolutely um, all right so what's uh Let's ask our, what's next on the list. <laughs> our, our fifth point was paying attention to smaller cards. We kind of covered this pretty well in misreading and dropping signals. You know, paying attention to those um, those smaller signals, the stage ones, the basics, the tools, things like that. You know, I've seen a lot of drafts where pack one, um, a whole bunch of a stage one or basic come through. Players not really paying attention to those. Pack two they pick a stage two of that line early on and then they end up with a split line because one person thinks they have an open line and the second person has taken a stage two in the second pack and they think that you know maybe it's less likely that somebody is on that so i've seen that um we've already covered it pretty well so i'm not going to dive too deep into it but um the the sixth point on our list is this is again uh we're taking a, a departure from the last kind of grouping uh and this is this is strategic evaluation and a lot of the time this has to do with advanced advanced preparation but strategic evaluation also happens on the spot and what i'm talking about is evaluating the strength and the needs of decks and lines or strategies within a queue so um this can be essentially assessing what a line might be able to do uh, what it needs to be able to do that how difficult that is going to be able to get both in the draft and how difficult that's going to be to accomplish in the game what some cards might be that could allow you to get to that more easily more efficiently uh, more reliably all of those things are in that macro level strategic evaluation i see a lot of players who are able to look at for example, a fighting line. They see the line itself. They see what the line is able to do, which is, you know, step number one. That That's the most important thing. And they see strong energy. Strong energy is great. But maybe they don't see the Reggie Rock Stark Mountain combo. Maybe they don't see the special energy recovery that would allow them to reuse that strong energy an extra time or even two times. Maybe they don't see the, the dark Porygon 2 that allows them to continuously flip to put their Stark Mountain back in play. Uh, things like that, really looking at the, the fringes of strategies or, or 
the cards that will allow the strategies to be as powerful as possible, really recognizing what the weakness in a strategy is and figuring out how to patch that up uh, or figuring out what the strength in a strategy is and figuring out how to push that further and make that even more reliable, even faster, even more powerful. Uh, so Andrew, uh, talk about strategic evaluation. What's been your experience with that? So I definitely think this is something that plays into both being a cute player and a cute builder um, because I, they kind of go hand in hand. Because as, as you look at other people's cubes and understand what makes lines you know, tick, what makes lines work, what makes them work even better, I think that influences how you build your cubes as well. Um, something to take a note for people that are really interested in cube building side too. Um, I, I think this also comes from also playing a lot of cubes in general like you get a feel for seeing different decks i know for me personally um you see i've just seen like a ton of different combos that people pull off just by drafting a lot of different cubes um nothing too crazy about that but i think you learn over time like more tips and tricks like i mean today i didn't even know what palky level x did but now certainly i'm going to be thinking about okay well what kind of decks could i make this work in now when i see it in other cubes i'm going to think okay is there a sort of flag on lock deck that I could maybe build around or if there anything like that, I could maybe, you know, try to incorporate in my strategy, um, stuff like that. Just, you learn more as you go. Um, uh, this is kind of a hard one to just like, I think just pick up and learn. But I think if you, unfortunately in current era, we have a wonderful resource to keep Koga to actually go look at cubes and you can spend time studying cubes. But I, I think one of the best things you can do that's, um, in, in, in surplus and in supplement to also drafting a lot is, looking at winning decks and looking at decks that have done well in champs cube or in cube league or those kind of things. Um, because I think that's where you start seeing the synergies. Like if you were to take a look at JL or uh, not, uh, Mike and JL's Delta mean cube at Vic's deck that we talked about before, and you can look at the deck and see the different strategies he's gotten through. It kind of gives you a heads up view on like different strategies and helps you then approach maybe even just that cube in particular of what those lines are capable of. Now, granted, some of those cards aren't in the cube anymore, but you know, you can take a second to look at, okay, what makes this, what makes this deck great? What are, what are components of that deck that make it work? And you can repeat that process for other decks that have won cube league, other decks that have won champs cube. I mean, decks that we've talked about on the podcast. I think if you spend time to look to see like what makes these strategies work, it makes your evaluation of lines going forward that much better so when you're taking a look at maybe other gen 4 cubes outside of what probably whatever wins you know mp's cube you can take a look at what makes those decks work and then looking at other mid power uh gen 4 cubes too you probably can take notes from there as well so i i think in summary like i i would just for one i think the more you draft the more playing with better players will teach you things and then also just taking a look at what the best decks have done can clue you into strategies yeah, absolutely. I, I do completely agree with you that um, this is definitely one of the hardest things to sit down and try and actively improve. Like this is something that comes from playing a lot of cubes, seeing a lot of decks, seeing different, a lot of the time seeing other people win with decks. Or if you're a person that likes to build lots of different strategies, um, then, you know, maybe this, this comes after you went one and two uh, a time or two with a deck that didn't quite pan out, but then you went 3-0 and with a strategy that you'd never seen before and you tried it out and it worked really great. So um, strategic evaluation is something that you can always improve on. Um, this is something that, I mean, this is something that I'm always improving on. This is something that I, I don't know if I've ever 
seen anyone where I felt like, you know, they they had the pinnacle of strategic <laughs> evaluation. Like they knew exactly what cards to draft, exactly what cards to put in their deck every single time to make it as good as it could possibly be. And of course, more experienced players, um, players who have thought about it more will be at an advantage in this situation. And a lot of the time they will be the players that do exceptionally well in most drafts. Um, but at the end of the day, this is definitely the piece of this list that I would say is is the most about continuous improvement. Well, it's interesting too, because like um, a cube, well, I, I guess going to like what's fundamentally involved a cube is that like you're, you're taking cards from different eras generally and putting them together. And then the cards become so much less what they were in that era, but what they are actually as they are. So like you take different cards like Jamie Amphorus, for instance, like, how does that card fare with, like, a bunch of other different Ampharoses? And then you take a whole span of maybe five to six years of Pokemon, put them together. So now you don't have to just look at the card in its format, but you have to look at the card's actual strength. And I think that's where strategic, uh, the strategic evaluation gets really interesting is that you have to really understand how the game works and how the game works in the context of a cube and then figure out how those cards play nicely with each other and what cards seemingly have the edge on each other. So, like, you have to have a lot of cube knowledge, a lot of cube experience, and you have to apply those together. It's really challenging. So, don't feel frustrated if it's something that maybe you don't quite get the first time. I mean, that's something everybody, literally everybody has to work on. So, my, if you feel like you're struggling with this, definitely, like, reach out in the cube help channel. I think if you just talk to people about cubes, like, talking about cube, I think it's one of the best ways to improve on this as someone who's maybe starting out trying to work on these kind of skills. You learn a lot just by talking with other people and talking about cube. And I think that's where I've learned the most from personally, as far as like what cubes, like what certain cards can do and like how you can get pair them with other things. Just talking with other people about cube, I think is one of the best ways to improve your evaluation on cards. Yeah, absolutely. So look, uh, you know, the summary of that point is look into cards that are kind of on the fringe of your line. See what cards might be able to enable your line that uh, aren't built in and uh, and always be looking for new synergies that maybe you haven't seen before. But moving on to number seven. So uh, one more point after this and we are through our list. But number seven is a very measurable one after the fact. <laughs> and it is wasting <laughs> deck space. So uh, it's very easy after a cube to look at your deck or much easier at least to look at your deck and say wow this card was not that useful it was not what i expected it to be um, and, and that is a really valuable piece and a really important piece of improving but uh, number seven is wasting deck space and it really goes to the heart of making sure every single card in your 60 is there for a reason and here is the thing. Any individual space in your deck may not make a significant difference. However, a card that is not useful could be an energy. That energy could allow you to hit an attachment that you would have missed otherwise. That hit that attachment that you would have missed might have gotten you an extra attack and that extra attack may have contributed to the win for a very close game. I see this happen all the time. I see people play 
maybe just a couple of extra cards that don't need to be in their deck. Maybe they could be extra consistency. Maybe they could be extra energy. Maybe they could be an extra basic for their main line. All of these things will improve either their consistency or maybe, you know, they they aren't playing enough of the techie cards that they've drafted. You know, maybe they have a Faba in their list or maybe they have a Faba in their draft pool. They think, oh, I'm not going to play against decks that use special energy tools or stadiums. Side note, you're wrong. I mean, every deck uses one of them. But uh, that aside, um, and, and they don't play the Faba and they play maybe a 16th energy. You know, energy have diminishing returns, of course. Once you hit enough, that's about all you can really do. You know, they, they don't gain value the more of them you draw. They just gain value if you can use them. So um, it... Uh, it's kind of a balancing act on the energy side, but wasting deck space in general is just a really common thing that I see people not really considering the impact that cards have in their specific deck. Uh, I see things like Hypnotoxic Laser um, really over-prioritized, uh, both in the draft and, and in the deck building phase uh, as well. If you think about most of the time, Hypnotoxic Laser is just a plus power it's a lot less enticing it's a lot less impressive um if you are a deck that inflicts poison regularly then sometimes it can be even worse i have seen that as well um so really consider what every card is doing for you unless it is a key consistency piece or a key piece of your main strategy Think about the cards in your deck. Think about what they're really doing for you. Uh, you know, I've, I've cut line toppers before because at the end of the day, what my deck was doing in games or what I expected my deck to do in games did not involve that line topper. That line topper was not useful. It maybe it took away energy from other sources that I needed energy on more and it was making me play worse or it didn't provide anything to the deck. You know, maybe I always wanted to be attacking with something else. So um, there are situations where almost every single card in your deck is cuttable. And recognizing those situations before you have already lost because of them is a huge skill to have as a deck builder in cube and, and in standard and in any card game. Um, understanding what a card will actually do in practice understanding the value that it has understanding what your deck does and how that interacts is a huge thing uh, so wasting deck space is my number seven andrew I, I i i feel like there isn't a cube player on this earth that hasn't had significant <laughs> experience with this so so tell me about yours yeah, I was going to say, you covered it up pretty well. Uh, I'll just add a little bit to it. I mean, that's definitely the, the number one takeaway I have from any cube league is what cards in my deck did not pan out the way I hoped they would. I mean, I think everybody has that experience. Uh, I don't need to explain much about it. But I, I think if you can look at your deck and correctly identify what cards held weight, what cards could have been subbed out for other cards, I think you're at a good spot. I think that's a good way to approach maybe uh, as a skill is trying to figure out which cards were worth keeping which cards weren't um and i think again this kind of ties into the last one like we just talked about where it, it does come from just experience in drafting and playing um i i think once you get a feel for like the strength level of each card you start to identify like what cards were worth keeping what cards weren't 
Uh, and, and, and the nice thing about this skill, I think, is that it carries over from power level to power level, I think, sometimes, too, where you can you can figure out, like, okay, like, well, I guess uh, you, can, you can figure out like, what cards were were great in, like, this certain in this certain mid power cube to the next mid power cube and and, and same thing with like high power cube like uh, it, it's easier to identify cards within power levels in my opinion so like um you, you can figure out you can you can take that information from cube to cube um much easier once you once you take time to identify and i think that like again if you just draft more often and then look at your deck list afterwards i always recommend just like if you're drafting in person i would take a picture of your deck just to like have as reference so you can look back at it but also in cube league and then team challenge like you have the convenience of cube koga as well i always recommend going back and looking at your draft pool like after the fact like after the event after you've played especially cube league because you played like six games with your deck and you had to commit to it so you, you always take a chance to look at your deck sort of do a mental report here saying okay what cards were great what cards did i not use as much as i thought was there a reason why like let's just say you play like a weakness card energy and you didn't hit any you know, water decks as the fire deck. I mean, that can just happen out of variance. That doesn't necessarily mean the card's bad, but maybe there were other cards that you thought could have been maybe energy. So I, I always just recommend looking back on what you've played on after like a long event. I think that's just the best way to improve on this. Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree with that. I, I do unfortunately think that the best way to improve at this specific point is the most painful. <laughs> just yeah. kind of to look at your deck in retrospect. You know, did you do well? Did you do poorly? what cards contributed to that result in either direction and uh and there's nothing that you can do about it on that day there's nothing you can do about it on that draft you just have to carry that with you and and take it into the next one just gotta so. hold that l i mean it can be frustrating right because <laughs> no one likes to be wrong but i think identifying where you've made mistakes is like the best way to improve in general absolutely yeah definitely agree but moving on to our final point, and that is something that probably seems obvious to a lot of people, but I think it's worth mentioning because I think it gets lost in cube specifically among improving draft and improving deck building, which are generally more impactful ways to uh, up your game, and that is improving your play, uh, improving your ability to play your decks. And uh, a lot of the time that involves looking at games that you lost, that you thought you lost because you got unlucky, and maybe you did get unlucky. A lot of the time you will have. But re-examining those games and thinking, where could I have done that differently? How could I have played this situation differently? What could I have influenced about this game that would have made a difference? Um, this, this one hits really close to home right now. I'm 0-2 in Team Showdown, um, in two games where I got really unlucky, and, and it's really hard to look past that. But now that I'm removed from those situations, I can look at them. Uh, one of the games, to, to a much lesser extent, um, but uh, one of the games I can easily look at, and I'm like, wow, I could have made tremendous changes to my play that would have resulted almost certainly in a different outcome. Like it would have been night and day different. Um, and those are, you know, also the, the painful kind of changes where you make them after the fact, you make them after you lose. Um, and, and these are often the ones where, you know, you don't go and look at a game that you won 
and think, oh, wow, yeah, I played that really well. And you really analyze your play there. You know, you, you can leave a game that you played really well and think that you played really well in it. And that's great. But the times where you improve are usually the times where you do not play well. And the times where you did lose and and you really have to assess, uh, you know, your decision making in those moments, how that affected your game and how you might be able to change that in the future. So this is in standard, I feel, and, and in a lot of other card games, uh, this is one of the first things that people think about. But in cube, I, I think that drafting and deck building are larger skills than actual in-game play and um, once you hit that level of you are a good capable cube player and builder and drafter um, the actual play in game can kind of get muddied you know the value of that can kind of be lost so um, Andrew what are your thoughts on this one yeah it's definitely an interesting one because you have to do a lot of reflecting and I feel like you have to have a improved improved knowledge to understand what you did wrong but uh, i i definitely agree you have to you have to be willing to get past the point where okay maybe you did get unlucky at certain parts i mean that can happen in a card game but if you're not learning anything from those losses then they aren't helpful um i, I think that's one of the biggest things in general for pretty much like any card game is just figuring out what you could have done better even if there were times where you got unlucky so like in Pokemon is a great example because like I mean Pokemon you you do have prizing and you can prize important pieces of your deck and that can really blow. But I, I think if you look at players like even like Tord Redcliffe, like watching him play, there are times where he'll prize like extraordinarily bad and still come out on you know with a victory because he's adapting his pace of play, how he's playing. And that's something you can take away from your games, right? Anyone out there, you know, when you lose a game to well, I didn't prize this card, or I prized this card that I needed. And you can ask yourself, did I, did I change my strategy from that point? Or was there something else I could have done to maybe help me guarantee more of getting that card? Like, I don't see people ever utilizing like Azelf in that way enough where it's like, okay, Azelf is a great card because it helps you get out of those like situations. But like sometimes people just get on tilt because they prize the card they're looking for. And they're like, they're not thinking about the probability of getting X card out of the prizes or how can you set up your prizes in a way where you can get like that card guaranteed. Like sometimes even just using Azelf when you like, you know, don't want to, to help guarantee you getting an important card out of your prizes, like stuff like that can just really matter in those kind of games. And you have to be able to look back on your games and think about, okay, did I play correctly? I think honestly, the best way to do this is just record your games um, and, and look back at them. If you're really trying to like dive deep into how your play is, um, watching yourself back and recording can be some of the best knowledge, especially when there are opportunities to do that. You know, when we have champs cube, uh, we don't have the P3 series right now, so you can't really do that. But if you have like uh, any type of screen recording, I think it's pretty much on any computer. Like, you can screen record your games if you're watching on tabletop. Probably harder to do in person, but I imagine if you have a tripod, it's probably not too hard to figure out. But honestly, like I'm, I know this from also just being like a musician, like watching yourself play as a musician is like the best way to like see how you're doing. But watching yourself play this game back and then going back through your mindset, like okay, what decision did I make here? Would I still have made that decision? that's the kind of thing you can look at and really get a lot of information from. So to summarize, you know, if you're wanting to really improve your play and you feel like you're stuck at this point, I highly recommend recording yourself playing a few games of cube and seeing if you still would have made those decisions maybe like a day later.
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, recording yourself can be a phenomenal way to improve quickly and effectively. Uh, it just takes a little bit more effort, which most of us are, are not uh, so keen on. I, I know I'm not. I'm pretty lazy in that sense. But um, yeah, and, and one thing that you mentioned too, um, and one thing that really resonates with me, I, I think my single qu worst quality as a player is when I get unlucky, I start to play worse because I understand that I got unlucky and that kind of absorbs my thinking like, oh man, I got so unlucky in this game. Like I'm in such a worse position because I got unlucky and I stop considering the angles of play that could get me out of that situation um, or at least considering them as closely. So that is a really big thing for some people. Um, some people have the mental fortitude of uh, I, I, I can't think of a good comparison. Some people have incredibly good mental fortitude, and even if they get terribly, terribly unlucky, they will still be able to weather through that with no issues. I am not like that. Most people are not like that. Um, so that is one thing that I think is quite difficult is to um, really assess your play after you got lucky, you know, or after you got unlucky. You know, think about where you could have done better, how you could have improved the situation. Because I hear a lot of people talk about how they got unlucky. Um, but it's very rare for me to hear about how people got unlucky and they misplayed. When in reality, <laughs> a lot of the time they, they did both. So, Well, um, it, it kind of goes back to, I mean, no one likes being wrong. Like, being wrong doesn't feel good. Making mistakes doesn't feel very good. But, absolutely. like, yeah. Oftentimes, I mean, it's perfectly natural. People want to, you know, it's easy to blame misplays or not misplays, uh, like bad luck or I didn't draw the card I needed. And it's funny because like sometimes that actually happens out of user error, like not drawing the card you needed uh, as something I hear a lot. But like people don't often think about, did I thin my deck enough to hit it? Now, sometimes obviously it could be like the last card in your deck and that sucks. Like, don't get me wrong. We've all been there. But I've seen I've seen other players say, "Oh yeah, I didn't hit this card I need," but they had like a twenty card deck and like you're hitting four outs. So like you have to think about too, like is there things I could have done to influence that? Like did I did I put myself in that position because I had to, or is that just a line of play I went to and it didn't work out? You know, there's that's just a lot you got to think about in a card game, and I think in cube in particular too, like you have to really analyze, did I go, did I really maximize my opportunity there? And I think for the majority of players, like you have to, you, I think all majority of players can say no, you, 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 there should be a lot you should be able to look into. So yeah, I, I think that could be the hardest thing. Playing off tilt definitely sucks. Tilt's real. I mean, me recognizing that tilt is real is important. I think in any player, every player out there goes through tilt. And if you can manage tilt well, I think, I think it helps you a lot. Yeah, and I, I take frequent trips to Tilt City. It's probably uh, <laughs> one of my most regular vacation destinations. So uh, I consistently a ninety degree angle. <laughs> definitely resonate with that. But uh, but that is the last of our points. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for listening so far, and we will be back soon. All right, welcome back to our conclusion segment. We want to thank you everybody for listening to this point. I'm really happy to be back. I'm very excited to be talking about Cube again. It gets me fired up, ready to talk about Cube on future episodes. So we should be back to a, hopefully our normal schedule, or at least as normal as it can be. The holidays can be a little bit weird, but 
we are going to try to release episodes more frequently. So just take a little bit of a break. Life happens. We're not going anywhere. I promise. Um, but thank you to everybody who's been patiently waiting for us since. Um, that said, uh, Connor, anything going on in your life since we've had quite a bit of time since the last episode? Um, I don't know. Probably, probably lots of things. Um, <laughs> yeah. Of course, uh, Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl have come out uh, since the last time we made an episode. I know Andrew and I have both been playing that, so uh, that's been a great time. If you have not played Gen 4, I strongly recommend it. If you have played Gen 4 and you're looking for a nostalgia trip, I strongly recommend it. If you have played Gen 4 and you're not looking for that, I don't recommend it. So, uh, uh, <laughs> assess, <that's> spectrum. <laughs> assess your situation based on uh, your experiences and desires. But uh, it, it's well put together. There are modern quality of life changes. There are also some kind of frustrating modern things going on that um i i would rather have not seen but that is okay overall i think they are very well put together um and and very nice games but if you are not looking for the nostalgia trip and you've already played gen 4 there's not enough new stuff for you yeah i mean it's basically like diamond and pearl as you kind of remember it has a few extra features like connor said some of them are kind of eh but I mean, I, I so I finished. I just finished actually the main story of it. It's it's pretty fun. I mean, it, it's cool to play those games again, and and they kind of add a little bit more to it. I do like the underground system in that game. It's cool how they. I don't want to spoil anything, but like I mean, they added more to it, and it's different, but it, it works. I like it. Um, it's cool. That actually, we can trade and battle online now. I mean, like if you think back to like back in the day when these games first came out, like your best bet was to have like hopefully like a like a friend that had this game and then you could like trade with them or maybe try to use like the global trade system but um in this day and age like you can just talk to your friend over discord be like hey do you have this pokemon i'm trying to fill the decks they'd be like yeah send it over it's that easy but is that's just something like i don't remember having as a kid you know i have to find someone at school that like who had this pokemon that i was looking for and it's kind of it's a lot it's a lot when you're 10 um but now it's like I just hit up my buddy over Discord and it's way easier. You can just connect on the internet. I don't know. That aspect, maybe I feel like kind of like a boomer saying that, but like that to me is just a huge difference playing through like, you know, an old game like this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely get what you're saying. Um on unrelated notes, uh let me think. I've been replaying through uh my favorite game of all time, Final Fantasy twelve. Um really been enjoying that uh zodiac so they got eight. it they got it right the 12th time is that what you're saying i, I guess so well so final <laughs> fantasy 12 is really interesting um it has a different combat system from any final fantasy game and from any game i've ever played hmm. um it has essentially uh, a system called gambits uh, and gambits are a fancy word for programming your allies ai um it is shockingly close to actually like writing code and i didn't understand that when i was playing it the first time but now that i you know work in tech i understand it very well um like you are literally just writing the code for (laughs) your character's ai um it's like if ally hp less than 30 percent then use heal like it's really that interesting uh, it's really like that it's really that detailed um 
And uh, I think it's amazing because the game flows so exceptionally well in most cases because, um, you know, you you will have a gambit set up for... Uh, well, for starters, I will say the foes, the, the enemies are all visible on the overworld. There are no random encounters. I do not generally like random encounters. Um, I think they really disrupt the flow of gameplay. They're pretty slow, but that is beside the point. Uh, that is one of the reasons why I don't or why I love this game so much, because they don't exist. Um, but, you know, maybe you'll have a gambit set up to attack the nearest enemy. So you you walk into range of an enemy that would be hostile toward you naturally, um, and you your character automatically starts to attack it. And then maybe another character, maybe it's a magic user, uh, says, you know, cast X spell if enemy is weak to this specific element. And then that character starts to cast that. And then maybe, you know, this this fight is taking a little bit. You're taking some damage, which is not usually the case for regular enemies, but for more powerful ones, it all uh, often is, um, you know, you've taken some damage. You have an ally who does some secondary or tertiary attacking when they're free, but otherwise has a list of seven, eight, nine, ten gambits that are cast buff on character if character's hp is below this then do this uh if character is statist in this negative way then cure their statuses and uh there's a ton of depth to it but it also makes the game play so smoothly which it's kind of the best of both worlds but the only downside I would say is if that if thinking about how you want your characters to act and planning for it in advance is not your cup of tea, then you will probably not like the combat in this game. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fair enough. That that's, that's what wild, it is. Though. That's wild though. That gives you so much control. I've never it seen really that does. actually in a in a game before like that, like a, you know, like a video game like that. Like that's actually like super cool. Yeah. I love it. I mean, it's, it's never been used in another final fantasy game. Um, it's never been, I've never seen it in another game that I have played period. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, final fantasy 12. I mean, it does other things really marvelously as well. Not just that. I do feel like that is really at the core of the game though. So if, if you like that, then it's a great thing. And if you don't like that, then it will be hard for you to come around on. Um, I mean, it's not a thing where I think that, you know, there's a group of people that love it and a group of people that hate it and there's no in between. I think people will be all over the spectrum with this. You know, some people will think it's okay and some people will be a little bit less okay with it. But uh, in, in general, I think it's a phenomenal system. However, if it is not your cup of tea, but you can still tolerate it, Final Fantasy XII also has the benefit of having an absolutely beautiful world, given the time that it was released. You know, uh, it was released in 2006. The remasters of the game are phenomenal. They do a really excellent job of preserving what is great about the game and improving on the parts of the game that are less great. Uh, I generally, you know, I played lots of remakes, lots of remasters. I do genuinely think that they are some of the best remakes, remasters um, that have been released just overall across games. Um, Absolutely phenomenal. The Zodiac Age, Final Fantasy XII, the Zodiac Age is what you can find it on almost every platform now in the modern era on 
Uh, I know it's on Switch, I know it's on PS4, I know it's on PC. If you're Xbox One, I don't know if it's available. It probably is. Um, but if not, then yet another long list of things that is not available to Xbox One players. I don't know. I, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's really fantastic. It has an absolutely beautiful world. It has one of the best soundtracks for any game I have ever played. Uh, it has a different sound or a different track for every re, you know region in the game which there are many of um fully orchestrated in the remakes and it's it's just phenomenal i love it so i've been replaying that um and really enjoying it uh andrew have you been playing anything else uh recently yeah i mean like so i've been playing a few different things playing a lot of hearthstone battlegrounds I and mean, i just love a lot of chess so that's been really fun um, the new Diablo update, uh, that's kind of so-so, but I do like the new armor system they just added. Um, I've been playing a lot, a lot of Flesh and Blood, uh, TCG, which is a new, uh, new, newer trading card game to come out, uh, from New Zealand. And I think we've talked, I don't know if we talked about it before, but I've been getting really into it. Uh, it's, uh, been actually, I played in, um, uh, few of the regionals actually that have been happening. There was one in... Dallas that was sealed and another one in Orlando that was constructed. It's a very hard game. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of uh, components to it, but it's really satisfying to play. Uh, it, it, it operates a lot differently than other card games I've played because in, in this game, like you kind of, you don't have a hand size limit, but usually it's like four because it's kind of like if you play like DC deck builder, you start with your hand of four, you don't discard at the end of your turn, but basically you draw at the end of your turn up to four so like you end your turn with like four cards uh and you use those cards to like block with or you can play instance in your opponent's turns but then when you come back to your turn you're limited to those cards so there's a lot of like resource management in that game especially in like the deck building the constructed format it's just really nice i don't know i'm having a lot of fun with it uh, i haven't played as much super recently because after uh, orlando i've been kind of taking a little bit of a break to focus on other projects but Come next year when they announce more tournaments, I can definitely see myself playing a lot of Flesh and Blood, and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I uh, I jumped on the train about the same time you did, um, played some Sealed. Uh, I found out after the fact that this is not considered to be a very good Sealed environment uh, for the current set, and uh, I did not have a phenomenal time <laughs> playing Sealed. Um, I, I didn't love the starter decks either, although I did play a in, an, an actual constructed deck uh, that I enjoyed quite a bit. So I, I think I haven't been exposed to enough of the game to really enjoy it the way that it was maybe meant to be enjoyed. Yeah. I felt um, the same way too. I feel like you would really like the draft of this game. Uh, the draft for uh, Ar Tells Arya is the set that the seal was from. Like The draft actually is what the set was built, was designed around. Um, which makes sense. Unfortunately, the sealed aspect, that's like one hero in that set that's like way too good. Um, but in draft, it actually is interesting because it becomes a parody between the three heroes. Um, but yeah, the draft of it's actually really cool. But it, I mean, it's kind of like how magic is. It's just a solid draft format. Um, but yeah, the constructed definitely is where it's at. Um, they have like multiple formats, but the constructed is like you have like you have an 80 card deck that you have like basically you can use 15 cards of that for a sideboard um and it's just a lot of like uh applying your knowledge of certain matchups and like utilizing certain tech cards in certain matchups 
I don't know. It, it gets really complicated, but like it, it definitely is satisfying once you learn how the game works that you can like make really informed decisions and like, I don't know. I, the game rewards you a lot for like, just like being good at the game. And I like that. So uh, it's definitely something I'm having to learn a lot though. Um, so hoping to, I'm excited to play more of it next year, but yeah, I think the constructed format is definitely the best way to play it. Yeah, I'll probably come back to it at some point. I just, uh, I think that my first experience with it was not ideal. Um, I am always a sucker for drafting anything. Uh, <laughs> I play Draft or Magic extensively, uh, Arena and Hearthstone, whatever the draft format is in Runeterra. Is it Expeditions? I don't know. I... I briefly uh, really fell in love with through Terra and I do think it's an amazing game but I don't think it has the support that I would need to really um, make it a priority but um, and then drafting games in general I just love <laughs> love love drafting in general um, and I could definitely see myself enjoying that in Runeterra because Runeterra is generally a very skill-based game there are a lot of decisions to be made um, it is a very well-designed game at its core. Uh, I think I maybe just didn't experience it in the best way at first. So, um, But to any of our listeners, definitely give it a try. Uh, it is extremely different from Pokemon. Like I, I do not know if there's a more different game from Pokemon in the current card game environment. But, and Flesh uh, and Blood? Yeah. Yeah, it's very it's very different. Um especially in the sense that there's no prizing. So like your deck's kind of just like your deck, but then like drawing at the end of your turn, I'm still ha like I had to get used to that. <laughs> I'm so used to drawing for turn, but like basically your turn, like your first action's kinda like how you start your turn. So it's like kinda weird. Um but yeah, if you're looking for something different or you know, or looking for just something that's like more combat based, like I think the game's got a lot of uh, a lot of potential. Um, so yeah, I don't know. You'll probably hear me talk about Flesh of Blood a lot on this on the side of the podcast just because I'm, it's been my latest muse. But between that and uh and Hearthstone Battlegrounds, just eating up an, also a lot of my time. Um, but I actually really have come to really enjoy like BG. I don't I don't think it's the best balance game. Uh, although I'd be interested to try, try Team Fight Tactics. But I think I think Battlegrounds has a lot of like just like unique situations that puts you in and can be really rewarding i think right now it it's in a it seems like it's in a really good place it's just uh, i don't know if you've kept up with the recent updates the armor system they added was really good the diablo uh character they added was not <laughs> and that's been kind of a uh, rough but he's supposed to go eventually it's like a special event character but i think once he leaves i think the it's actually a really good spot as far as like balancing goes and everything that's cool. Yeah, I, I haven't played Battlegrounds in a little while. It's probably been a few months. Um, it, uh, I, I kind of, I kind of come and go on it. I don't love it, but uh, it, it definitely hooks you in for a mm -hmm. little while, and that's kind of the, the rhythm that I play with it. But uh, as far as, um, as far as other stuff, I've. Uh, I've been working really hard on um, ironing out some cocktails. Uh, I'm really big into mixology, which I know we're 
we're generally a very family friendly podcast. I don't think mixology is inherently not family friendly, but it is definitely <laughs> a more narrow audience. So I don't know. Um, either way, um, really been enjoying that. Um, and hopefully I will be able to sell them in the very near future. So that would be exciting. Um, I, I have tried a few. They are quite good. Thank you. you give Thank you. a firm 100% emoji on them. <laughs> uh hopefully hopefully the uh intended audience that will purchase them uh thinks the same but either way that's definitely been something on my mind lately um yeah i don't know between between those few things that i've called out i think that's about it andrew anything else going on in your life yeah i mean you're looking at it i mean i'm excited to get back to the podcast i mean this has been something i've been missing to do there's just been a few other things you know happening at the same time where it's like you know Sometimes in life you gotta you gotta like put stuff on the back burner to like you know get up, get through other stuff. But I, I'm excited to make more podcast episodes. Should be hopefully getting back in the normal schedule here. I mean, Car and I both keep busy, but you know we still love talking about Cube. So you you can expect more episodes to come in the future. Um, I mean that's all for me. Do you have anything else? I think that's about all for me as well. All right. Well, thank you to everybody who's been listening this far. We always appreciate your guys' support. Um, yeah, you've been listening to P Cube, the one and only Pokemon Cube podcast, and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.